You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which I record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respect to their elders. This time in the zone, we're going outback. That sound you heard at the head of the podcast was the whistling kite, not so familiar to city folk, but just one part of the multi-voiced avian soundscape in more remote and arid Australia, along with many other beguiling sounds and sights across this vast island continent. Australia is the sixth largest country by area in the world, over 7.5 million square kilometres. But with a population nudging only 26 million, we're just behind Mongolia and Namibia for the least densely populated country on Earth, just over three people per square kilometre. China, another huge but very mountainous country, has about 150 people per square kilometre. And most of us live in our cities, about 85%, 70% in our capital cities. Australia is one of the most urbanised of societies. The idea, the imagery of the outback is woven into our national imagination, but most of us never actually experience it, or only fleetingly. Even those more obvious tourist destinations such as Uluru, or Katajuta in the red centre. Except dedicated travellers who enjoy the open road, camping a bit rougher, and being in remote, very isolated parts of this remarkable land. Our guest this time in the transit zone is one of those, writer, photographer and traveller, especially recently around Australia's distant deserts, Mandy McKeesick. Welcome to the zone, Mandy. Good morning, Pete. It's lovely to be here. Where are you? Where am I? Well, right at the moment, I'm at a little town called Andamooka, which is in central South Australia. And Andamooka is one of Australia's prime areas for opal mining. And if I look out the window now, I can see a flat landscape, very featureless to the uneducated eye mainly stony plains with small shrubs, probably less than less than a foot tall. And in town itself, you've got these little almost it's almost a shanty town, though I though I hate to use that word, but you've got old fibro shacks and little humpies made out of tin and that. And it might look a bit shabby, but you've got to remember that these are the opal fields. So these little shacks are just as likely to be owned by millionaires. There's a story to everyone. There's a story to every person. And that's one of the reasons why I love traveling in the outback. Just to give our listeners a sense of how far away you are from me, I'm in Melbourne. To get to you, I could get into my troopy cruiser and drive across to Port Augusta, head up the Stewart Highway, take a right to head to Woomera, Roxby Downs, a little bit further. I'm probably about a good three days easy driving from you. I hope you'd welcome me there with a nice drink when I arrive. But that's how far away you are from me. That's correct, Pete. Yep. Opal mining towns, they're unique, aren't they? I've spent a bit of time in Lightning Ridge, few visits to Cooper Pedy, which is not so far away from you there now. But tell us more about opal mining towns. They are just something else, aren't they? They are. And we're here for a particular reason, because my husband opal mines at a little place called Grawan, which is west of Lightning Ridge in northern New South Wales. So taking more than a visitor's look at Andamooka, he's quite interested in the ground, how they find opal here, how it differs from Grawan, and of course, the people that go with it. 
there's a lot of different characters. Opal Mining seems to attract the different ones. And a lot of your listeners might have watched that Outback Oval Hunters show and it all looks a bit crazy. Well, it, it can be a bit crazy, but it's something you grow to love as well. Unique atmospheres in places like where you are, Andamooka, Cooper Pity, Lightning Ridge. You go to the pub in Lightning Ridge and that's, well, you meet some really interesting people, let's put it that way. I like the fact that in Lightning Ridge itself there's one pub, but if you go 65 kilometres further west to where we are, it's a tiny little opal mining area and there's actually three pubs there. As you look out the windows, you say, Mandy, you've got that stony landscape, but also you've got the Mullerkeeps, haven't you? And as I understand it at Andamooka, and I've looked at pictures of Andamooka, I haven't been there yet, but there are no dugouts like you have at Coobapiti where people actually live underground away from the heat, but no dugouts there? Not that I'm aware of. I've only been in town probably 24 hours and we're still getting the lay of the land, but it appears that it's mainly above ground here and the mining seems to be a combination of open cut and underground. But check in with me tomorrow, I'll know more. You hinted at this. What is the essential lure for you and your husband of being on the road? You spend many hours just driving along either on the asphalt or on rougher roads around Australia, particularly off-road when you start to head into the deserts. What is the deep attraction for you? I think for me personally, Peter, it's that moving horizon and with it, the new experiences that come along being a writer and someone that's always keen to promote the bush or rural and remote Australia, it's also about understanding this country too in a broad sense, getting to know it and what makes it tick on that elemental level. It's exploring things that I don't know nothing about and apparently there's a fair few of them. Mandy, give us a sense of your personal story then, just to put it all in context because you're out there travelling and with a very particular set of perceptions and your own personal lens. Take us back a few years. Where did you start out? Where were you born, for example? Well, I was born on Bega on the south coast of New South Wales, born on onto a dairy farm and then my family transitioned into fishing, so had that rural upbringing. I went to university in Sydney and studied geology and then moved to Western Australia where I worked as an exploration geologist in the desert areas, a lot of time in the Pilbara area and also around Kalgoorlie. After that, we travelled for a while and then moved back to the family fishing business. So that meant I spent a fair bit of time on a very small boat on a very big ocean, which (laughs) didn't actually prove to be the best and wisest career move. And then um, about 25 years ago, we decided to move into farming full time. And that meant we had grazing properties in northern New South Wales and more recently in central Queensland. So very much a rural person covering those three, I suppose, primary industries, which was your mining, your agriculture and your fishing. I'm a bush kid. Yeah, a bit rough. Probably don't go so well in the city, but being a bush kid and I, and I just love rural Australia and that's what I suppose has taken me more and more into the writing is to be able to get to know the people out bush even more and be able to share their stories with others. That's just what I love to do. You sound a bit like me in the sense that I don't consider myself belonging to any particular state because I was originally born in Perth and travelled across east when I was very young and I did grow up in Brisbane so there's that Queensland thing still in me but Travel knocks that state loyalty out of you a bit, doesn't it? Do you just consider yourself a citizen of Australia in that sense? I do. I really do. One of the the biggest compliments someone played to me, and it was actually quite a backhanded compliment, 
he said Mandy's stateless and a lot of people might sort of react to that but I really like that idea that I'm stateless I'm not particularly parochial to any one state I'm Australian and I want to know more of the country as a whole. So you've had both experiences. You've lived not just on the coast, but on the ocean in many ways. You've had that sort of experience. Most of us in Australia huddle all around the coast, don't we? But you've also had much deeper experience now of both working and travelling inland, inland Australia. So compare for us your sense of both those ways of living, right on the coast and deep inland. Yeah, I like them both, as long as neither is too busy. I think that's the critical thing to me. I can live on the coast with a few people. I wouldn't like to live on the coast in a city per se. And the same out bush, I prefer it where there's less people, but I guess out bush, <laughs> that's the majority of the time. Although it can get busy at times and I wonder what's happened. But the coast, I suppose, is where most of us are drawn to. And even out back, even inland, we're drawn to water. I think that's just a, a normal human reaction. So even inland, you know, to spend three days by a waterhole, which we had to do when South Australia was in lockdown, instead of just being in a remote area that's arid and dry all the time, to find a waterhole was so special to spend three days there or to be travelling in the great sandy desert and to come across a bore that's got a hand pump on it so you can pump the sweetest desert water which has been filtered through all the sand and it's the best drinking water you'll ever find. So even inland, you're drawn to water. Yes, you're right about that water or just those little stops where you make yourself a cuppa and it's a little creek and a few trees and the, either the red sand or red rocks, etc. They're, they're great moments, aren't they? You're not very far away from the Lake Torrens National Park, which is, must be one of Australia's more remote national parks, big salt lakes, which do occasionally fill up like Lake Eyre does. You're not that far away from Lake Eyre either at the moment where you are in Andamooka. But they're marvellous landscapes, aren't they? Those great salt lakes, either dry or with water in them, attracting all the birds. Life. They are quite incredible and we had a lovely experience a few nights ago where we camped on the edge of a small salt lake but it was glistening white. It had had just a little bit of rain probably the night before so you're walking on this lake and it's crunchy but there's also moisture underneath it as well. It's the weirdest feeling. It's really hard to explain properly but that foot massage that you're getting walking barefoot and connecting to country and connecting to that lake that way was quite incredible and look I was thrilled and I ran around with the drone and and various other cameras and got very excited and then 24 hours later I realized that spending that much time on a salt lake walking bare feet maybe was not the smartest idea because my feet sure felt sore the next day. What lots of little cuts in your feet. I think so yeah and the salt is just sort of hardening it up it maybe it's sucking the moisture out and, and then um Maybe it, your sole or your feet just feels, almost feels blistered 24 hours later. So I guess that's all part of the hardening process. If I ran around a, a salt lake barefoot every day, then I'm sure I'd be fine. But because this was an extraordinary moment, yeah, I felt it the next day. Now, we travel around Australia in a land cruiser, a troopie, which we fitted out ourselves. We really designed it so there was a, a place for everything and everything in its place, but pretty Spartan. It's not sort of a luxury item. It sounds like your cruiser is even more Spartan. Describe how you travel, what you use to travel around in. I suppose we've set it up specifically this year for the deserts because I'm on a 10 deserts expedition with the aim of putting a foot into each one of Australia's official 10 deserts. So we definitely don't tow anything, but we have a 2005 Land Cruiser Ute, 
onto which we've built a canopy. That canopy has a false floor. So on what would be normally be your tray back, that's where we can store jerry cans of water and of fuel and various tools and toolboxes and, and other bits and pieces that you need. The canopy itself has a sleeping compartment, a bunk with a rear door that drops down. When we're traveling, that folds up and it also can take all our clothing and our all my photographic equipment and laptops and whatnot. And then there's three other compartments. One's the kitchen compartment with a freezer and all your food. Another one is the power compartment with a battery, the gas bottle, inverters. And the last one is pretty much these days just for a lot of tools and spare parts. And then on the roof, we have a, a massive solar panel that is wired up to the whole canopy. So we've got a 12 volt and 24 volt and we're never out of power. And yep, very Spartan, very basic, perfect for desert travel, for bouncing up and down sand dunes or spending a lot of time in remote areas, very self-sufficient. Not so good for caravan parks though. <laughs> That's true. And I'm going to be a bit of a nerd here. What sort of tyres have you got on? Round ones. <laughs> Thanks for that, man. Round, round ones, no, they are heavy duty. They're... um. I think they're a 14 ply, so they're a tough tyre. They're a narrow one, not a wide one, which a lot of people recommend for desert driving, but we've gone with the narrow one. It also has, we've gone back to split rims because we know how to fix them. So as soon as we get a flat, we take the flat off, put the new one on, but the flat gets repaired on the spot pretty much. We break it down and take out the tube, fix the tube if necessary, or put a new one in can put the whole thing back together and before we've gone, before we've driven off more than five metres, we've got our spares all sorted again. From your description, that sounds very much like dry country travelling, but that setup, as we've discovered too, if, if you get a bit of rain, it gets a bit more difficult. You, you have to sort of stay indoors to stay out of the rain and it gets harder, doesn't it? It does. They're good days for driving, really rainy days. Just keep driving until you find the next spot. And cooking and eating, how do you go about that? Uh, most of our cooking's done around a campfire and I'm very lucky to be married to somebody who one loves cooking and two is in his element around a campfire. So all our cooking equipment basically is a spun steel camp oven, which has a lid that can double as a fry pan and one very ancient, very blackened billy. And all our cooking pretty much gets done on the campfire and and he's a wizard. It's nothing for him to, to whip up a roast chook and roast potatoes and vegetables and gravy and all those trimmings. And even even one day he said, oh, it would be ready at 10 to 5, and 10 to 5 it was ready. And with that, damper is a big thing because it's so easy to whip up a damper with a bit of flour and water and the amazing varieties of damper you can make. I think over the last four months we've had camembert and grape paste dampers, we've had pumpkin dampers, we've had sultana dampers and we've thrown in chocolate sometimes. So it's really quite amazing what you can what you can do when you when you want to and when you need to. I can see you're really doing it tough out there. <laughs> oh, it's shocking. And I, I referred earlier to how we had to, well, not isolate, but we had to stay on a waterhole. We'd come out of the Simpson Desert to find that South Australia was in a total lockdown. And, of course, when you're in the desert, you've got no communication or no news. So we had no idea. But we came out to find it was in lockdown. And, and basically we had to, we found a waterhole just up the road and we parked up there for three days. And we did it tough, you know, because we, 
were pulling yabbies out of the water hole and we'd made friends with an older couple who just happened to have half a cow and so we were having reef and beef and all these amazing dampers that yeah it was pretty tough there for three days you mentioned the news i'm interested to know just how the media seems to you you are involved in the media you're a media worker in the sense of being a photographer and putting stories up online and i guess you you check in you've got 4g at the moment we're using the internet to record this podcast but there are fairly long periods when you disconnected we both know the feeling of heading down the highway waiting for the next roadhouse to get a bit of data and to get a bit of a signal but for most of the time, you're probably out of signal. Is that right? That's correct. And it, it is a double-edged sword when you are a writer photographer. It's wonderful, really, to be out there and you can't get any signal. That might sound counterintuitive, but it is really nice to be disconnected from this world, from this so-called world and society a lot of the time. But then, as you've just said, you do find yourself coming into reception at a roadhouse. And most of the time, you're sort of, looking forward to that you need to check your messages and emails and all that but also you find how you get sucked down that rabbit hole so quickly of suddenly you find yourself looking at social media and and reading things that are just rubbish really and you just think I don't need this why why am I doing this (laughs) does the news seem different to you when you've been isolated for a week or so you've been out there in that world that we're going to describe in a bit more detail in a moment but when you click back and to see you know federal news about politics, uh, news about this, news about that, and a lot of that clickbait trivia, does that seem something that just intrudes on your life and intrudes on your brain? You mentioned it there, trivia. That's probably the best way to describe it a lot of the time. I look at it in despair that we do spend so much time in our normal lives getting caught up in that 24-hour news cycle and and getting caught up in in social media or, or watching videos of cats or whatever we tend to do to waste our time. Whereas when you haven't got that, you're looking at what's around you and you're learning what's around you and you're reconnecting to everything that isn't in the news. There's something very fundamental about being out there, I think. There are some givens that neither you nor I can avoid. There's the sense of space. There's distance in space. There's the time that is taken in moving through that space and the speed that you use, whether you're on foot or in your cruiser heading along the highway or bumping along a sandy track. There's time, there's distance and space, and there's your movement. Have you come to a different view of that very human experience of being in the world of time, space, and movement, and that unspooling landscape as you travel along the highways and the tracks? Yeah, for sure. And it's all about spatial awareness, and especially out here, you do get that sense of deep time. You also get that sense that we as as humans are really quite insignificant, even though we are connected to this landscape. But yeah, I guess when you're out here, the first things that fall away are the days of the week. You never know what day of the week it is, and it really doesn't matter. And the second thing that falls apart is the hours of the day as we've constructed them. It doesn't really much matter if it's 11am or or 4pm, your day becomes more regulated by the sun and your circadian rhythm has fallen back into place. So you're happy once the sun's gone down to actually go to bed quite early and wake up quite early with the sun. And then the phases of the moon become important to me to know what time of the month it is. And that's one of the things I've really enjoyed on this trip is 
being able to look out from my bed every night and see where the moon is and get to know that phase and even when it's the dark and you lose the moon for that couple of days and you've been looking at it in the east and you know suddenly to look for it in the west because it's going to reappear as the new moon and its concave face will be pointing towards the west rather than the east and you know from then on in that you're going to have more light at night because it's coming up to the full moon so your sense of time becomes a lot more related to the natural world rather than the constructs that we put around it as human beings. The most obvious construct are the days and the week structure. That's something that we've just laid on ourselves. And it is quite amazing to me how quickly, when you've been travelling for just a couple of weeks, you say to your partner, uh, what day is it? <laughs> is it Wednesday, Thursday? Oh, mm, I've completely forgotten. And weekends has become totally irrelevant. They're just part of the unfolding tapestry of your experience. So, And Mandy, we looked up in the sky the other night, and this is something we both share. We both, you've got that big night sky out there, which must be glorious. But we saw the crescent moon. You're just talking about the phases of the moon. We saw the crescent moon with a very bright Venus, just so bright down below the crescent moon. You must have seen that out there in the desert sky, did you? Yeah, and that I think that's a classic, a classic night sky event, isn't it? Really, when you do see Venus and the, and the crescent moon, and it's interesting you say that because this ten deserts expedition that I'm on is it's underpinned by a story I'm writing for R.M. Williams Outback magazine. And the opening line of my story has been Venus and the crescent moon hang in a darkening pastel sky. And it's a classic and you're sitting there around there like we were the other night and we had the campfire and you've still got these beautiful blues and mauves in the sky and Venus is shining so bright with the crescent moon next to it, which is just off the new moon. It's a classic, beautiful scene and I don't think you'll ever get tired of that. You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne with writer, photographer, traveller Mandy McKeesick in the remote South Australian opal mining town of Andamooka. You've mentioned a couple of times now the 10 Deserts project that you're involved in. Tell us more about that. There can't be too many people who have done so many of the deserts around Australia. Just take us a little more deeply into that. We have to go back 30-odd years when I met my husband in the Great Sandy Desert in WA. That was our first experience of the desert. And then over the years, we became familiar with a man called Lem Bedell, a surveyor for the rocket testing and the atomic testing at Woomera and Maralinga. And as part of his job, he had to create a network of outback roads through South Australia and Western Australia, which covers a lot of the desert area. And for years, we'd we'd looked at maps and and saw where Len had put these roads. One of the more famous ones is the gun barrel highway that people may have heard of. But we looked at these and it sort of sparked an interest in us to to get out to these remote places while, while we can. And then research, as part of my work as a writer, it became, okay, well, we've got the great sandy desert that we know about and lens tracks go over a lot of the western deserts. What else is there? And there's actually a Geoscience Australia has put out a list, an official list of 10 deserts. And 
I defy just about anyone to name all 10 because it's quite difficult. I ask that question as I go around and no one's been able to mention all 10 to me yet. So it just became something I wanted to do was to go out and find all 10 deserts and put a foot in each one and see why they were different or why they're not different or why they're similar or what's their story or who lives out there. And it just became this project that I knew nothing about that I knew a little bit about and that's isn't that the best thing if you know a little bit about something and you want to go and find a lot about it that's got to be great you probably get this response too just thinking about when I tell people oh we drove across the Nullarbor and they quite often the first response is oh poor you that must have been a boring trip and you go well no it wasn't actually (laughs) because you look out the window and for me it's constantly changing and if you say to people oh we're spending a lot of time in the desert they some of them must look askance and say Oh, okay, in the desert. You mentioned similarities and differences. Do each of these deserts have their own character? I guess they obviously do because of the variation in in vegetation and landscape and topography. But have you discovered that each desert, you can think back in your mind and see it as having a specific character? Uh, that's a hard question, really. Uh, and it's a yes and no answer that I'm going to give you. A lot of the deserts have similarities and a lot of their boundaries are very feathery and fingered, particularly, say, between the Great Sandy Desert and the Tanami. There's no defined boundary and why one's called the Great Sandy and why one's called the Tanami is not exactly clear. Yet you have deserts like the Sturt Stony Desert, which definitely has its own character because it is basically gibber plains and these amazing mirages and isolated pockets of mesas and isolated wind-sculptured sand dunes that are just incredible. Then you have, say, between the Simpson Desert, which is probably one of the more well-known deserts, and that's in in that corner country between northern South Australia and western Queensland and a bit of southern Northern Territory. Well, it graduates down towards Lake Eyre, and once you cross Warburton Creek, the desert name changes to the Tarare Desert. So it's really just a creek that, called it the boundary but once you're in the Terrari it's quite a white desert there's lots of salt lakes there's lots of clay pans the dunes themselves are a lighter color and as you move further north into the Simpson those colors become darker more a rustier redder color so you can almost distinguish the two deserts by their color rather than their geographical boundary of a creek. Those color differences are very interesting we on our first trip to Western Australia, just undertook this little project where we just got little, very small samples of the sand from everywhere and brought them home and put them into little vials. And then we labelled them. We kept a little set of labels so we knew where they came from. The variation and just in the red alone, the reds, the ochres, the whites, the blacks, it's interesting how much variation there is just in the sand, for example. Yes, it is. And it's also the time of the day that you're looking at them because when you've got that early light or that afternoon light, they can actually look a deeper, darker red than, say, looking at it in the middle of the day where they become a a paler colour. So time of day also is very influential. And of course, The season that you're travelling through the deserts in is influential. If you're travelling through a really dry, droughted years, then it's not going to look nearly as spectacular as if you've had some wet years. And the wildflowers. Yes, the wildflowers. (laughs) You can't get away from the wildflowers. And we've been lucky this year. Back in March, before we started, there was a band of rain that came through from northwest 
WA pretty much all across through the centre of the desert areas that we've been travelling. And by the time we got on the road in July, the wildflowers were starting to jump up everywhere and it has been spectacular. We're very blessed to be doing a 10 deserts expedition in a year like this. Indeed, and we saw some vast areas of wildflowers around Carnarvon and north of Carnarvon, and I was just blown away because I'd seen little bits of it before that, but just acres and acres going to the horizon, the whites, the mauves, the yellows, all the different colours, and then the dynamics of it, it was the wind coming through, and you get rippling through the flowers as well. That's right, and then you've got the attendant bird life. Uh, you'll have the budgies with it. You'll have zebra finch everywhere if there's water around and the honey eaters come in because the grevilleas are just dripping nectar. It's not just the colour of the wildflowers, it's the wildlife as well. Mandy, I mentioned just the idea of the outback as it is wrapped up in our imagination as mostly city dwellers. You must have had time and I guess the inclination to reflect on the great Australian outback myth, the way we say, oh yes, the outback and and cling to that as something valuable and something important, but it's something beyond our ken for most of us. How does the reality, you're experiencing the reality quite deeply now, and there'll be much more of it for you and your husband, how do you think that reality intersects with this myth, this still evolving myth, I suppose, in Australia? Yeah, another hard question. I think probably that myth needs to be put to bed. And the way I look at it is the outback or the inland, it's it's just a different environment to what a lot of people know. And it has its booms and its busts. It has its challenges and it has its moments of immense joy. And it's an environment that I'm, I'm really comfortable in. Whereas, you know, put me in the city and it's probably good for me to go to the city for a week or two and I do enjoy it, but it's a totally different environment to what I'm used to. But just as, as that, maybe a myth of what a city is, just as that's good for me to go there. I, I think it would be good for everyone based in cities to come out and live in the outback. And it may not be this myth. It's not going to be good all the time. There's going to be days where it's windy or where there's flies or it's just you just don't want to be there. But I'm sure there's plenty of days, especially in the last three months, when there's people living in towns and cities that don't want to be there and they can't escape it. Can I put the word pristine to you? Because this is something that we've thought about a lot as we've travelled around. We've been exhilarated at one level, but to another degree slightly depressed that so much of Australia has already been touched by humans and their animals, the grazing, the mining. Do you think there is such a thing still in Australia as pristine? Have you experienced what you consider to be pristine landscape? I think there are still places that are pristine. I don't think I've particularly seen them on this trip, mainly because where we've been has still been on tracks. As long as there's been a track, there's been people through there and you can't escape. Even if you haven't seen another vehicle or another person for three or four days, there'll still be a tin can somewhere or it might be 40, 50 years old, but someone's had a, a fuel dump out there or even, and particularly when you're around more people, then you start to see the debris of human life all the time and particularly toilet paper. That's a real bugbear of ours. Some people just don't seem to know how to live in the bush and look after it. But I think those pristine places are out there, but you have to, you'd have to not be in a vehicle and not be traveling on tracks. Maybe there's people 
that run, say, camel treks. I know Andrew Harper with Australian Desert Expeditions runs camel treks through the Simpson, and I'm sure he's seeing pristine areas because they're walking across country. They're away from roads and they're away from the easily accessible places. So, yes, there are pristine places. Finding them's a little harder. Mandy, one of the memories that both of us have is the silence, or we call it silence, it's actually not true silence, but the sound of remote Australia when there's nothing else around except the wind through the desert oaks or through the trees and perhaps some bird song. Is that something that struck you as well? And that's a great gift too, isn't it? That sense of silence, shall we call it, but a sense of natural sounds. I think so. And I've been lucky throughout my life to live in places where that can be the norm and out in the desert I I guess really in a lot of places where I've been the only mechanical slash human noise that I would hear at night would be our freezer kicking in every now and again but otherwise it can be especially at night it can be full of sound especially you mentioned the desert oaks there and they have wonderful voice if the wind's just a, a slight breeze they'll whisper to you yet if it's a a gaily day then then the oaks roar they roar at you like the ocean. So they're always talking. They always have voice. If it's a warmer night, you might have crickets. And then, of course, you do have other nights where they are utterly silent. There, There is no noise. And they're so silent that you can pick up the footfall, a single footfall of a dingo as he comes into your camp. And if you imagine how stealthy a dingo will be, and how quiet it must be when you're three quarters asleep to still be able to hear that single footfall below where you're sleeping. And that's the sounds of the desert. That's the sounds of the outback. Let's talk about your photography and a bit, if you don't mind, about your writing because that's a a creative exercise. You've already mentioned your drone. I'd love to talk about your drone. But first of all, for the photographic nerds amongst us, what's your kit? What sort of cameras are you using? And the lenses and how you go about it with your kit. (laughs) Okay, I'm, I'm a Nikon girl, so I travel with a Nikon D850 as my main camera and the old workhorse, the D300, as a backup. And then I have a DJI drone and a phone and a laptop, and that's the basics of it. I'm still aiming at getting a drone, particularly for still photography, not for video so much, though you can get some beautiful video shots. And and they're very clever, the drones these days, with their AI and being able to do preset video shots. But I'm interested in drones for still shots. How have you found them for getting shots that you just can't get in any other way? Yeah, they definitely put a different perspective on what you're seeing. And especially trying to capture landscape, I think it's really important that you put something in the shot that's identifiable, whether that be a person or a vehicle or something that people know the scale of, because otherwise an aerial shot from a drone of a landscape as big as some of our deserts, it's just too big and it doesn't comprehend in in the head. But if you can see in the like in the bottom corner this tiny little bit of white and then you realise that, oh, that's the solar panels on the top of our vehicle just reflecting a bit of light and, oh, that's how I know how big the vehicle is and that's just this tiny speck in this landscape that's just been taken by a drone. And it is drones in that case are a really good way of showing perspective of the landscape. 
The impression that we gathered about Australia, an overall impression, is that this is a vast, ancient land, and the word that I keep coming back to is eroded. We used to have very high mountains in Australia, as high as the Himalayas, but we're almost at the end of an erosion event, aren't we? Everything's very eroded. And when you come to take photographs of that, even the slightly higher mountain ranges, you put your lens up there and you take a picture and you look at it and you go, oh dear, that doesn't really get there at all. I find the scale of much of Australia and much of the Australian landscape very challenging to photograph. Do you find it a little bit tricky at times too? Yeah, I do. And going back to what we were talking about with the wildflowers, it's really hard to try and get a photo that does justice to them. But often I find words can actually paint a better picture. And if I can tell you about the little sandy desert where we travelled through in August this year when we, we struck it at peak wildflower season, and I'm not talking the little daisies and that carpet of wildflowers, I'm talking about the bigger bushes, the grevilleas that were out in flower. So you've got honey grevilleas, it's a quite a shaggy looking bush, but it sends out these sinuous branches, flower spikes. And on the end, you've probably got a 20 centimetre bright yellow grevillea flower and you've got the honey eaters running into it or you've got the honeysuckle grevillea and you only have to touch that tree and it rains sweet nectar on you. And these trees were that thick and, and so much in flower that we're driving along a two-wheel track. And these flowers are literally slapping the ute because there's that many of them. And at the end of the day, our ute was just covered in nectar. You could not even lean your elbow out an open window without it sticky, being sticky. And so this is how thick they are and how rich they are in the nectar. And a photo doesn't really pick up that joy and that vibrancy that you get by using your words sometimes. The single shot is part of the problem in a way, isn't it? That really what you probably need, and I come from a film background as well, where you can actually move the camera around within a, a single shot, that perhaps we should be looking more to developing carefully curated and creatively constructed slideshows with the, with the close-ups and the wide shots and the different angles. I wonder if that's part of what we should be doing, particularly online. Yeah, I think it's also part of storytelling, Peter. It's it's using wild, wide angles and it's using close-ups, it's using words, it's using videos, it's using emotion, it's trying to show and not tell people. Yeah, a combination to tell that story. There's a lot of different ways we can do it and depending on our audience, it changes depending on who's listening or reading. As a media person, you are thinking about audience, you see something and perhaps part of your brain's going, oh, I can write about that, here's an interesting phrase, or however you construct your writing. Similarly with the photography, you're thinking about an audience. But can you also, as Mandy, just be in the moment? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I journal every day, which I find very important, and that's jotting down the phrases and what I've seen and what I've felt. And of course, that gets accompanied by just your snapshots from your phone. So yeah, I, I'm quite comfortable jumping from one to the other and working for people like Aaron Williams Outback. You obviously come to know their house style and what they're looking for, for images and how they like to present them. So your part of your brain is always working along that. But yeah, it's multiple 
ways to tell a story and and I think that journaling is very important it's, and I actually don't feel like I've finished the day until I've journaled. So if you're out there taking photos perhaps of wildflowers or a particular landscape you might be taking some for Australian Geographic and a slightly more commercial style you've come to learn that house style but do you also take photos for yourself and investigate through photography just for yourself? Yeah, you sure do. And just little videos that you're never going to show anyone else, but they're good reminders and memory jotters of where you've been. And it's good just to get the phone out and do a video of which particular desert you're driving through. And it's through a grubby window, so it's never going to be any good for commercial. But it'll be interesting to put them together at the end of the day and say, oh, yeah, they were the first sand hills we found in the Streslecki or this was where we had to drive through the mullocutes of Coober on the way out to the Great Victoria Desert, or this is us ploughing over a sand dune in the Simpson. And they're just, yeah, <laughs> they're definitely not video quality that you would put out there to the public, but they're, they're wonderful sources, I think, of raw material too. By doing these personal snapshots and writing journals, it's you're sort of capturing that idea or that image that you can then use down the track if need be for more commercial you've got that raw material there if that makes sense it certainly makes sense to me now mandy something we've barely mentioned so far you alluded to the budgies earlier birds in particular but wildlife more generally that's just one of the gifts of traveling you see things that nobody else gets to see. There are unique moments. You mentioned budgies, for example. We love seeing those huge yellow-green gaseous clouds of undulating flocks of budgerigars. And I gather you've seen a few budgies recently? Ah, yes. The budgies have been thick this year, just about everywhere we've gone. I've learned a new word this week, which is always a good thing, and that's a murmuration, a murmuration of budgies. And that's those big gaseous clouds that you're talking of where you've got thousands of them and they all move as one and it is really something quite unique to see but because it's been such a good year in the deserts we have seen bird life everywhere the zebra finch have also been prolific especially if you're near water we're on new haven um, conservation reserve in the territory there and they had a little trough of water below a tap and the tree above it you could not see the leaves for zebra finch there would have been thousands of them there and just to walk towards this tree and they slowly, well, not slowly, but in stages, they seem to take off from the tree and it's like it's just the whole tree's exploded. There's so many of them. When you see so many budgerigars and so many zebra finches, which are such a beautiful bird, my mind then goes to thinking of every one of those pairs nesting somewhere, producing young, it is a remarkable process, isn't it? The biological process of that. It is, and I think that's part of storytelling is telling people that they do nest everywhere. And when you're on waterholes and you see river gums and they're basically avian apartment complexes because every little hole has got a budgie in it or it's got a kite nest in it further up the tree and it's home to thousands and thousands. And I get quite disappointed when you pull up to camp somewhere and someone's taken a chainsaw to the dead, the so-called dead branches on the river gums, but all they're doing is cutting down homes to these thousands of birds. And I guess that's part of storytelling and sharing the love of rural Australia is letting people know that, you know, don't, don't chop down that dead branch because it might look dead, but 
look at all the wildlife that's in it. In many parts of remote Australia, as you're travelling along, the raptors are also constant companions, black kites particularly, but the whistling kites we heard. And the wedgies, of course, I just love wedge-tailed eagles. I think they're magnificent creatures. How many raptors are you seeing at the moment? Are you seeing a few wedgies? Are you seeing some of the kites and some of the smaller raptors as well? At the start of the journey, when we started off in the Streslecki, we were seeing lots of kites. They were our constant companion, mainly the black kites. And then when you're around the water, more so the whistling kites. The kestrels are quite common across all the deserts. But the wedge-tails... We haven't seen so much in the deserts themselves, but more on the fringes because there's actually not a lot of kangaroo or emu in the deserts. It's too dry for them. And it's not till you come to the desert fringes where you might get a bit of roadkill and that's where you see the wedge tails more coming in. So they're your raptors, but you're, you're getting all sorts of finch. And a couple of birds that I've really come to associate as desert birds this year is the white-winged fairy wren who who's poorly named he should be the blue-winged fairy wren he's quite remarkable and the crimson chat which i hadn't known of before and to see this brilliant red flash of a crimson chat against the burnt out carcass of a, a four-wheel drive in the gibson desert just the contrasting worlds is incredible and one of the nighttime sounds that most city dwellers don't get to hear is the barking owl. Different sounds for the male and the female, and there are quite a range of sounds, but barking owl. Barking owl's more, he really does sound like a dog because he goes woof, 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 woof. And you think, what's going on here? Well, there's no dogs out here and the dingoes don't woof, woof. And then you realise that you're listening to an owl and that, that's also quite incredible. And incredible is a word I probably overused because, as you can probably gather, I'm still quite overwhelmed and fascinated by the deserts that I've seen this year. Most of our animals, not all of them, we've got a lot of the roos and the wallabies, and you and I have both seen in Alice Springs in captivity now the marla, which is almost extinct in the wild. Beautiful animals, but so many of them that I haven't seen most of them. They're nocturnal, they're, particularly in the deserts. Nighttime is the time for the animals, whether it's bilbies or lots of the little tiny hopping marsupial mice, etc. So how many of some of these marsupials and other animals have you seen? The lizards, the snakes, etc. No, unfortunately, because as you say, as you allude to, the desert often belongs to the night and you've got your, your bilbies or your mulgara, your betongs and hopefully your mala that you don't see. And you really only know of their presence of the tracks that you see in the sand the next morning. Most of our travelling was done in winter, so we didn't see a lot of the lizards during the winter months, but now they're coming out and we're seeing all sorts haven't seen the snakes. I've seen tracks of the snakes, but I haven't actually seen any. But the lizards themselves and the little dragons there, a lot of them are in breeding colours now. So they're spectacular. They'll have a red-orange head and shoulders and running down to a ringed tail. They look remarkable. The one creature that I haven't seen that I would really like to is a thorny devil. I've been looking out for them, but they've been avoiding me up until this point. You and me both, I haven't seen a thorny devil either, and I'm just dying to see one. They, they've got to be the coolest dudes in the desert. <laughs> I think so. And, um, you know, it'll happen and we'll see a thorny devil eventually. And we've often looked around for them and hoped to see them, but we just haven't seen a thorny devil yet. But uh, there are so many fascinating creatures. 
Well, Mandy, you've given us a, a small sense already of some of the lessons you've acquired and learned out on the road. What have been your most lasting lessons? What do you think Australia, remote Australia, has actually taught you as a human being? I'll leave the big question to last, Pete. <laughs> well, um, I think probably the take-home lesson is you really don't need much to live simply. And you can live simply. And you definitely don't need to be in that 24-hour news cycle. And you definitely don't need social media. I think you can probably live a richer life by living simply and living in touch with the environment, be connected to places like the deserts and see what they've got to tell you. And one thing that I, I like to live by or try and live by is to accept that what I do know will always be exceeded by what I don't know. But if I still keep asking the questions, then I reckon I'm going to be in a pretty good place. What are the mysteries that remain for you then? What are the things that you really still want to investigate? Everything. Everything's still out there and wonderful. I don't know anything. I've, I've got to know the deserts a little bit this year and I can start to recognise them, but I know nothing. There's still so much to learn and so much to find out about. And you only have to look at the night sky and that just does my head in. There's, there's mysteries all around. We'll never stop. Mandy, thank you so much for being with us in the zone. I'm not jealous. I'm not jealous at all. Not half, anyway. Enjoy the rest of your trip. Where are you heading to next, by the way? What are the next few days travel for you? They will probably involve wandering around a few more salt lakes and then heading up towards the Strezelecki and Inaminka, or weather depending and depending on where we wake up in the morning and we'd like to go. Mandy, thanks for being in the zone with us. Thanks, Pete. And thanks for the opportunity to talk about the bush and remote Australia. It's obviously a passion of mine and I love to share it. Our guest in the Transit Zone, writer, photographer and traveller, to Australia's remotest regions, Mandy McKeesick. I'm posting some links to Mandy and some of her work with this podcast. If you'd like to email us with your comments, questions or ideas for new podcasts, here's The Zone's email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com, transitzonepod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening. And please join us again soon right here in the transit zone. You are now leaving the transit zone.